You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to see you this Sunday morning. Glad you're here. Thanks for, uh, just by the way, thanks for all your faithful, just servant-heartedness in getting here. I realize as we head further into fall, we are, more people are coming. This is a good thing, but we also know with our limitations here on space and parking, For those who put in already a whole week's worth of steps just to make it from your car to here, we're just grateful for you and uh, know that we're praying and working through uh, creative options here in the days ahead. But man, we're here. And so by God's grace, he has us here together this morning so that we can hear from him through his word by the power of the spirit. And so if you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn with me to the book of Romans as we continue our study in this amazing letter in our New Testament Uh, looking at the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, as I mentioned, we we took the first 11 chapters just to to see the power of God to save sinners and rebels like us through his amazing grace and mercy that has been poured out through the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, in our place, through his death, burial, and resurrection that has brought us by faith in him new life. And what we've been looking at now, starting in chapter 12 and following, is looking at now what this work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, what this work of transformation in our lives looks like um, as the gospel has now come in. What does it look like for the gospel to go out? And so this gospel has changed everything. We looked last week in verses one and two, how the very mercy of God through Jesus Christ has transformed our worship of him. We saw really a mini representation of the entirety of the Christian life through radical and total surrender to God in light of the mercy that he has given to us in response to the mercy that he's given to us in Jesus Christ. And soon, starting at the end of chapter 12, we're gonna see how this gospel transforms us as it sends us out into the world and what it looks like for us as a new creation in Christ to now respond to God in the world around us as we think about the neighbors around us, the non-believing world around us, as we even encounter evil amongst us in the world around us. What does this transformed life in Christ look like out there? But before we can even get there, in verses three through eight of chapter 12, Paul's going to turn inward now, from upward last week in our relationship to God to now inward in our relationship to one another. And this is significant. And this is on purpose, because before we can get to the end of chapter 12, all the way to the end of this book, and what life looks like out there on mission, we first have to understand that we cannot export what it is we have not imported into this body that we cannot impart to a world that is far from Christ um, that which we do not possess as the body of Christ. And so these six verses here are gonna focus in on our relationship to one another as brothers and sisters in this new family called the body of Christ, the church. And there are two things that I want you to see. I had two points last week, going to go with an easy two this week. Keep it simple. In these six verses, we're going to see how the gospel transforms us in both our regard 
for one another and our responsibility to one another. That's the breakdown of this passage. Our regard for one another as the church and our responsibility to one another um, as the church. And so we're gonna look here, starting in verse three, in verses three through five, we will look at our regard for one another. Notice what Paul says right out of the gate in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, that's the church he's speaking to, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the first thing that we need to know in our regard for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is that this thing has to begin by not thinking more highly of our own selves than we should. But we're to have sober judgment. That, that phrase, thinking too highly of yourself, this is in the context of where Paul's about to go and talking about our differences and how we have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the needs of the church. But before we can talk about our differences, Paul wants to remind us here not to think more highly of ourselves in regards to our position in the church, our role in the church, our abilities, our gifts, whatever it may be, that we might somehow falsely see our individual selves as more important than our own brother or sister in this same church. None of us can think more highly. The reason this has to even be here, by the way, is be simply because of the tendencies that are innately in our flesh, our sinful nature, to view ourselves as better or more superior than other people whom God has redeemed by the same blood of Christ. This is, this is our tendency. Tim Keller, I think, gets it right when he says this, despite all the warnings our culture gives about the danger of low self-esteem, the real danger is actually our self-centeredness and our egocentricity. Most of the world's religions have identified humanity's worst problem as actually stemming from inflated views of one's own importance, our abilities, or our rights. We are all prone to exaggerate our own wisdom, competence, sincerity, and power. This is just part of the fallen human nature, is that we have a propensity to view ourselves as better than other people. Is that not one of the sources of divisions in our whole world right now? is false views of superiority towards one another. We, we cannot come into the church as blood bought by Jesus Christ and have this be our starting point that somehow we are God's special gift to the church and somebody else isn't, that we are somehow better. Uh, instead, we, he says, we are to have sober judgment of ourselves, meaning we need to think rightly about how we even got here. We need to get downwind of ourselves a little bit and remind ourselves of who we were before Christ redeemed us and how did Christ actually redeem us. Um, meaning here, in other words, entitlement and pride should, be, should have no characteristic of any of us in this room. None of us should have an ounce of entitlement or pride in our re regard to one another as the church because that's none of our stories. 
We didn't arrive in the church because of our own unique abilities and accomplishments that made us worthy to be redeemed by Christ. Not at all. No, we are here because of what the gospel has accomplished in our lives. The good news of Jesus Christ, as we've already seen in verse 1 and 2, which summarize chapters 1 through 11. It is the mercy of God that has saved us, not our abilities. If we could have purchased our own salvation because of our own natural ability, then we would have never needed the work of Jesus on the cross. And so it is not our own accomplishments that got us here. Paul's point here, none of us had what it took to be saved. We, had, we all had what it took to be unsaved. None of us had what it took to be saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are here, not because of our abilities. That's what it means to have sober judgment, that we might not think too highly of ourselves. This levels the playing field for every one of us. This is our starting point. The standard for how we are to regard one another in this church is not on the basis of superiority, but it is on the basis, rather, as Paul says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, a measure of faith that's used here is God measuring out, giving out something to us. Now, most of us, myself included, have read this passage and falsely understood this to mean that the measure of faith that God is giving is a certain allotment, a certain amount of faith that he gives differently to different people. That's not what is actually being said here. Paul's not saying that the opinion of ourselves depends upon the amount of faith that we've been given in which God has given some people a little faith and he's given some people a lot of faith. That's not true in this passage. The word measure that is used here is the Greek word metron. We get the word meter from it, at least other countries do, different in our standards. Um, we get the word meter. It means a standard of measurement. It's not an amount that's given. It's a standard that is given. So a more literal way of reading this text is this. To each, God has given faith as the measure. That's what's being said here. That is how we are to regard ourselves in relation to one another not by our perceived differences in ability, but rather by the same gracious and merciful salvation that has been bestowed upon all of us apart from our own works. That's the standard. So in verse three, we get one side of the coin of how we're to regard one another that you wouldn't think too highly of yourself. But verse four and five, we get the other side of the coin of our regard for one another that we wouldn't think too lowly of ourselves either because of that same mercy. Um, that just like our human bodies, Paul's gonna say, God has caused us not only to be one, but we are interdependent upon one another and our unique differences that God has given us in order to carry out the greater function of the church. See this in verse four, Paul uses an illustration. For as in one body, talking about a human body right here, we have many members and the different members do not all have the same function. Uh, and so Paul compares the church in verse four here to the human body. Um, one of Paul's favorite illustrations, by the way, in several of his letters is the human body. 
We possess, as humans, one body. We are embodied souls. And you don't get two bodies and three bodies here. You've got one body in this life in whatever form you've got it in. You've got this one body. And we know that in the average human body, there's about 78 organs. If you start getting into the different teeth and bones and all those uniqueness, then we've got about 315 different parts in the average human body. There is no such thing as an unimportant member, an unimportant part of the human body. Some of our body parts have more mortal functions than others, certainly, but all are contributors to the health and the vitality of the function that is needed for the body to thrive as God has designed it. And even if your heart starts getting cocky and making fun of the appendix going, yeah, tell me what use you got. Just regard that, lest the appendix rise up and show you the catastrophic uh, implications of the appendix gone wrong. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, these words, the eye cannot say to the body, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable and we bestow the greater honor, and on our unpresentable parts, they are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul says about the human body. Some of our body parts, they at least appear to us, some of them to be weaker and some of them to be greater of, of, of distinction. Some of our body parts are very visible and open. Some are very covered, so they are modest. And that's how we perceive them. But the truth is, there is no such thing as an unimportant body member. They all play together for the same function, to fulfill the same purpose. Different parts, one body. Paul says in verse five, the same thing is true with the church. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. Different members, one body. The many are all interdependent for the sake of the one. There is no such thing as an unimportant member of our human body, and there is no such thing as an unimportant member of the body of Christ. Um, there is a, uh, a famous uh, illustration of this. There was uh, back a long time ago, there was a famous organist. I don't even know if this is a actual viable position anymore, but there was a fa famous organist who was putting on a concert and right before the curtain was to lift and he was to play the first note, uh, one of the production guys comes up to him right at the edge of the stage and looks across and goes, are we ready? And the organist, so cocky, 
looks at the production guy and goes, are we ready? We are not performing tonight. I am performing tonight. Yes, I am ready. And then that guy kind of shrugged off, walks off. The lights go dim. Everybody's in. Then the lights come on. The curtain begins to lift. The organist then plays the first key that's going to ring loud throughout this entire auditorium and nothing happens. Totally nothing. And the guy panics and he's freaking out. He looks over and there's the production guy with the cord to the power. And he goes, are we ready now? Point being, if I don't play my role, you don't play your role. There is no distinction here. We are different parts playing towards one purpose. And every one of us, God has assigned a unique purpose towards this greater function in unity that we have. And the same is true here at Northway. We have no room to say that there is one part of our church that is more significant than another. To, to say that what I do on a Sunday or, or Josh in leading the worship because they tend to be two of the more central parts of our gathering under the teaching of God's word and the singing of God's word does not mean that these are the most important roles or we're the most important giftedness in the church. That's not it at all. There are hundreds of different pieces of this, this uh, gathered puzzle that we play any given Sunday, and yet throughout the, let alone throughout the week, as members of Christ Church, right now, there are men and women sitting in this back room right now who are making sure that this mic is amplified right now. There are men and women in that back room who are making sure our stream is on for those who are unable to join our gathering here this morning right now. There are others who are running the slides. We have men and women who are serving our families right now with our, our youngest of kids in the back who are teaching them the gospel right now and opening God's word. There are, there are those who are sitting with young babies right now, praying over them, praying in accordance with their own parents for their salvation right now, asking the work of the spirit to do what only he can do. We have those who are, God help us, working with parking right now, trying to figure out how to make sense of all of this. There are so many different parts. Teaching is not just relegated to going right up here in this pulpit. There is teaching going on all across our church right now. There are so many unique parts and none are greater or more significant than the other. They all matter. There's three important truths that are highlighted in this section of our regard. Unity, diversity, and mutuality. Unity, we derive our life, our existence as a church here from the same head, Jesus Christ, who has given us life and granted us now to be part of one body. We are equal in Christ. And yet there is diversity. God has made us different on purpose. He's created his church to be wonderfully diverse for a reason. And then there is mutuality mutuality and that we are interdependent upon one another. God has so rigged the church to work like he's rigged the human body to work that one part cannot operate without the others. There is mutuality, unity, diversity, mutuality. So this is how we are to regard one another, not as better than, not as less than, but as equal on the basis of faith and our goal and as different on the basis of function and gifting. 
Is that not good news for the world today that is so horribly divided right now, that is seeking all sorts of man-centered ways to try to unite people across the board, and yet God has accomplished this once and for all through Jesus Christ. His sufficient work on the cross has leveled the playing field, has granted grace to none of us who could have earned it. And by his gift of grace, he has brought us into this family and given us our equality together in Jesus Christ so that none is better or less than the other. But having said that, that's how we're to regard one another. But at the same time, there is also a responsibility with our differences that we are to employ for the benefit of one another. And you see this in verse six and following. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. In other words, God's grace is not only seen in him giving us our righteousness and bringing us together, but it's also, his grace is also seen in the spirit gifting us with unique abilities and contributions. We will call these in scripture spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, as I would define it, as I see in scripture, supernatural enablements provided by the Holy Spirit to perform a function, usually that comes with ease and effectiveness for the purpose of building up Christ's church and fulfilling Christ's mission. Supernatural enablements provided to us by the Holy Spirit. And the scripture tells us when it comes to spiritual gifts, every single Christian who has been blood-bought by Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit has at least one gift that the Holy Spirit has given us, at least one. And, and in the scriptures, all 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, they all tell us that. Paul here in Romans tells us, as each, according to each, let each, every Christian has at least one gift. And many of us have been given a combination of gifts, all to be employed. And God gives us these gifts, which are intended to correspond to our unique role within the body of Christ and the kingdom work that he has called us to. We are each responsible to God and to one another for stewarding the gifts that he has given us to help build up the body of Christ. We all have a responsibility and role to play with our gifts. You see this clearly. C.S. Lewis pictured this so beautifully, by the way, in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Peter and Lucy and Susan go through the wardrobe and they enter into Narnia, their passage into their conversion, they go into Narnia, and at one point, they encounter Father Christmas, who kind of plays the role of the Holy Spirit, and he distributes to each of them gifts. To Peter, he gives a sword and a shield, and to Susan, he gives bow and arrows, and, and Lucy uh, gives her this magical kind of uh, ointment uh, that he, he gives her. And, and he says these classic words, he says, when the time is right, now they don't know why they've been given these gifts at first. They have them, but they don't know what to do with them yet. And he says, when the time is right, you will know what these gifts are for. And sure enough, in due time, as they play out their roles, they begin to find out, Peter begins to find out, oh, God's leading me in battle. He's giving me this sword and this shield, the same with Susan and the, the bow and arrows that she's been given. Lucy, 
been given this anointment for healing to treat the very wounds that occur in the battle. And you realize each one has been given these different gifts. They didn't really know what they were used for at first. But as Father Christmas says, you're going to find out in due time. And in many ways, that's what we see in the scriptures for us. The Holy Spirit has distributed by his own grace, his own choosing, unique gifts that are different from others for our unique role that we're going to play. And in time, we will begin to discover them. Now, what are these gifts? Starting in verse six through eight, Paul is gonna list just seven of them. This list is not exhaustive, nor is this sermon on spiritual gifts. There are many other places where there are other lists of gifts that are mentioned in the scriptures. Um, And none of those lists are exhaustive. Some of those lists include gifts that are mentioned in other ones, and some of those lists include gifts that are not mentioned in other ones. In all, there's about 22 gifts that are listed in the New Testament. 22. Paul is just going to list seven of them right here. And he begins, and I'm going to walk quickly through these gifts that are mentioned here and and talk about why they are in the place they're in, how they're intended to be used. Paul says, first, If you have been given the gift of prophecy, then use that gift in proportion to your faith. Now, prophecy defined, I'm gonna give a little definition of each of these. Some may differ. This is, I think, in just the raw essence of it. There's a lot of nuance. Prophecy in its most simplest form simply means the supernatural enablement to receive and proclaim a message from God. And when you see the gift of prophecy in the Bible, it's actually used in several different ways. The gift of prophecy is not always just in one way. Yes, you do see in scripture the enablement to predict the future. And a prophet rises up who predicts the future. God has let them see a vision for the future and they proclaim it. There is a prediction, but it's not always used that way. There are other places where the gift of prophecy is uh, more or less about receiving the words of God that are recorded as exactly as God wants them to be scripture. And, and that is how prophecy was used. We have prophecies that were became our scripture, where de- carried by the Holy Spirit, certain men began to write down the words of God that would become universally binding over all Christians at all times. Now that usage of the gift of prophecy is no more that particular usage. There is not an office of prophet anymore. You had the office of prophet in the Old Testament and you had the office of prophet formed uh, in, as apostles in the New Testament. And those aren't around anymore. The 12 apostles are gone. We have the word of God that has been left to us, recorded down exactly as God decreed it to be. There is no adding to scripture. There is no taking away of scripture. There is not another prophet that is on this earth that is the office of prophet to give us new revelation to add to what is already here. That does not exist. But that was one of the ways it was used. There is other usage of the gift of prophecy that is used in just preaching. The idea of not foretelling, but forthtelling of actually taking old revelation that has already been revealed in God's word and delivering a prophetic message that is timely and needed for such a day as this to a particular group of people who needs to hear it so they would be persuaded to move in obedience towards Christ. Um, and, uh, and so you have, 
You have this gift of prophecy playing out in that regard. There's also the use of prophecy that is a kind of divine disclosure or unveiling of truth that does not counter the word of God, but a truth given by God that the spirit makes known something that was previously hidden so that it can be delivered to someone else or a group of others for the purpose of strengthening or encouraging or comforting or warning or even rebuking, all for the purpose of building up Christ's church. Um, And I think in this case, and we've seen this play out so many times in our church, which is beautiful, the Holy Spirit reveals something to one of our members who's been praying and seeking the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit reveals something that is a word that is needed to go give to somebody else. It does not contradict this word, but it is given as a means of encouragement, a means of divine revelation to help build one another up in Christ or provide a needed warning as such. This seems to be, by the way, what Paul is speaking about here. And of course, with this gift, as with any gift, there always has to be an asterisk that we always have to be careful about using this particular gift on the same level of authority as scripture. We gotta be careful about dropping the words flippantly, God told me so. Do y'all know that that is what the third commandment is speaking about? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Is not talking about putting damn at the end of God's name as if that's his last name. That's not the use of taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is when you would declare an oath and put God's name on it that God never said to give. That's using his authority when he never granted it for that purpose. And we got to guard against that. And so, which is why Paul, by the way, includes an exhortation here. If you have the gift of prophecy, it's got to be used in proportion to our faith. Now, again, just like verse three, many people read that as meaning the amount of faith. Use it in proportion to the amount of faith that God's given you. It's literally not what it's saying. The Greek reads according to the analogy of your faith. You proclaim that which is analogous to the faith. In other words, Paul is saying one who receives this gift must not prophesy in a way that contradicts the faith, that contradicts Christian doctrine that has been handed down to us. And so make no mistake, the word of God is completely sufficient for us in providing through the Holy Spirit the counsel and the comfort and the correction that we need for guidance in this life. You need to be more dependent upon what is already revealed than always trying to be dependent on some new revelation to come through. God has given us his word. This is what we should hunger after. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is also sufficient to gift Christ's body in such a way that he can send reinforcing messages of encouragement and hope towards a specific need others in the body have that nobody else knows about, where the Holy Spirit can reveal to one exactly what another person is walking through when they've told nobody else so that you can go declare what God has said. So that way God can get the glory in helping build up one another's faith. And so prophecy is one of those gifts that's given here. Second gift that he gives here is that of service. The, the one who serve in, in service, use it in your serving. Service defined here would be the supernatural enablement to meet the practical and physical needs 
of others. And it's so fun to watch this gift flourish as well. Uh, last year, we had an intern here named Dalton Boatner. Anybody know Dalton? He's down in Austin now. That dude embodied the gift of service like I've never seen it before. Always looking for where the needs are that nobody else wanted to fulfill. Just, I mean, he was doing grunt work quite a bit, but he found ways to go serve tangible needs around here. The Holy Spirit would just show him needs that needed to be met. He found such joy and such pleasure in doing it. And it's interesting where these two gifts, prophecy and service, are located. And almost nearly all the gift lists that have them, they're here in this order, as if to say there are more visible gifts, such as prophecy, more verbal gifts, and there are more behind-the-scenes gifts many times. A lot of those with the gift of service who are going around serving needs or serving needs most folks wouldn't even know are even being met right now or had. And they just have a heart to go serve it with ease and fruitful effectiveness for the sake of the body of Christ. Paul not only speaks of service, but he also speaks of teaching as well. Teaching defined here as the supernatural enablement to clearly explain the word of God to others and making God's truth understandable and accessible. This certainly is one of the gifts that I enjoy. I love getting to take the scriptures and make them understandable to show what God means by what God has said. But this is not the only place that gift gets exercised. Don't confuse teaching with pulpit. This is an office of elder that the Lord has given in Ephesians 4, but the gift of teaching is broad and plays out in many rooms in this church with both men and women helping others to understand the word of God so they can be built up in the word of God to make it clear and understandable. And so we see that gift playing out as well. The fourth, the gift of exhortation, otherwise translated as encouragement, the supernatural enablement to provide reassurance and support for those struggling or discouraged to help stimulate one's faith and growth towards Christ. If you've ever met Steve Harden, okay, one thing you need to know is just that. Everybody's gonna laugh. Oh yeah, Steve, we all know Steve. Steve is a unicorn. He is a unique bird in the, in the, in the family of God. Steve used to be the campus pastor here at Northway. This brother though walked in living exhortation. Always keeping us informed of where the North Star is. Always pointing to Jesus. Hard times, good times, didn't matter. Always finding a way to go out of his way to go, hey brother, hey sister, did you know that God loves you? Just constantly exhorting, constantly encouraging one another so that faith is built up. Always keeping that North Star in front of us. Paul also lists the gift of giving here, contribution to those who contribute to, uh, contribute to do it in generosity. Con giving in this gift defined, the supernatural enablement to cheerfully and generously contribute material or monetary resources to advance the kingdom. And by the way, let me just say this, this has nothing to do with wealth. This doesn't mean that just because you, you're wealthy, you have the gift of giving. In fact, most studies would show the wealthier you get, the less people tend to give, at least in proportion to what they have. If somebody gave X amount of money regularly to serve needs of the church or others, and then they get this big bump over here, they tend to keep giving at the same level. Wealth is not the issue here. It is the contribution and generosity of the Holy Spirit burning your heart to give where there is either material or monetary need. 
And so we have some folks who make some of the lowest level of incomes you can make and are some of the biggest givers, not just to tithing in the church, but meeting needs, constantly finding the single mom, constantly finding the person who can't make rent, constantly finding the person who's struggling with food and groceries and goes, man, I'm going to give and give and give because I trust that God will provide so that I wanna give. It's a Holy Spirit divinely enabling to give above and beyond with cheerfulness and joy. He gives the gift of leadership here, the one who leads to do so with zeal. Leadership defined the supernatural enablement to instill vision and motivate others to accomplish the work of ministry. I've been at the privilege of being under a lot of incredible leaders in my day. Those who have a divine ability to instill that vision, to see down the field at what nobody else can see is coming and lead and execute towards that vision and that goal when everybody else thinks you're crazy, but you see what they can't see. And you have a way to compel with zeal and inspire others to follow you towards that goal and accomplishing it for the kingdom of Christ. And then there's the gift listed here, lastly, of mercy, acts of mercy, and those who have them to do so with cheerfulness. Mercy defined the supernatural enablement to detect hurt and empathize with those who are suffering to provide compassionate and cheerful support to those walking through the ashes of pain. And notice it's not just, it's not just feeling an emotion towards somebody's hurting. It says acts of mercy. It's actually doing something with that emotion, stepping into the hurt of someone else and supporting them in their time of need. Just the ministry of presence often looks like this, but the ability to empathize and to enter in and to support those who are in need of booing. Um, this is my wife to the hilt. This is how we met. This is what attracted her to me is I was the, I was the extroverted idiot who's out in the middle of the room going, hey, everybody, look at me, and just kind of drawing attention. My wife's in the corner with the girl that nobody else was talking to, who she knew was walking through something painful and would just be drawn to leave the 99 and go out and grab the one and enter in and not just empathize, but actually step into those areas of need and help. And so you have these gifts. Paul is seven here. There are many others described in the scriptures. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 and following says this, Peter breaks it down into two primary categories. As each has received a gift, use it in serving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And listen how he frames it. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God and everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He seems to narrow all the gifts down to two major categories, speaking gifts, serving gifts, visible gifts, behind the scenes gifts, whatever they may be. God has framed these in such a way that we would use them, we would steward them. And notice, by the way, all these gifts, many of these gifts, not all, but many of these gifts are actual things that the scripture commands all of us to do. So there's no excuse here. You can't go, well, I'm not gonna be nice to people because I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm not going to give ever because I have the gift of staunchiness. Uh, I, we don't have the, you don't have the excuse to go, I'm not gonna give or serve or teach or any of these things. We've all been called to do some of these things. It's just that for some, the Spirit of God has provided an extra measure of a grace to enable someone to do with ease and unique effectiveness 
what others can't easily do for the purpose of building up Christ's church. Paul's point here is that when he is given these gifts, we are to use them. We can't just sit on them. It was in the Middle Ages that this got divided, by the way, between the priesthood and the laity. The Middle Ages started to divide kind of the church as the professionals and the spectators, the pros and the fans. And then in America and the West, we've simply just compensated the whole thing based on talent. That is not the church. We are not to be, as, as Bud Wilkinson, a former coach of uh, OU once said, where the church looks like 60,000 people in dire need of exercise watching 22 men in dire need of rest. We are all to be contributing, not just 80% of us watching the other 20% do the work. And so how do we do this? Let me just close here. I'm already out of time. How do we discern our spiritual gifts? Four exhortations I would give us here at the end to work these out. I'm gonna send resources this week in the email so you can dive further in all you want. And we're, we're not done here either, but four things. One, spend some time studying the gifts according to scripture. Spend some time reading 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, list out various gifts the spirit has given to the church. Um, spend some time discerning what your gifts are. As you read through, does any of those resonate with you? Um, and I think it's, it's helpful and important um, to, to look at these, these gift lists, so to speak, as well as those who embody them in scripture for us to gain a better perspective, even of our own experience with these gifts. But we do need to be careful when you read the gift lists, don't treat them like Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram test, okay? It's not, we're not looking for your giving your prominent giving gift with a wing of prophecy over here. That's not what we're looking at right now. Um, online gifts, by the way, online gift tests, those are helpful to some degree, but I would say they can be totally awful in most degrees. Many of those online tests don't include all the biblical gifts. Some add non-biblical gifts to them. Some have wrong biblical definitions. And much like personality tests, when used with wrong motives, they can become your identity. Oh, this is who I am, rather than have your identity rooted in Jesus and his grace and his mercy for you. So spend some time maybe doing some introspection on these gift lists. Use some discernment. If you don't have the gift of discernment, ask somebody who does. They can help you. Second, though, I would say self-exam. Do some more introspection besides just the lifts. Paul says, don't think of yourselves greater than you are, but with sober judgment. Think about the measure of grace Christ has given you. Consider God's grace to you in your life. What do you enjoy doing? What kind of ministry is satisfying to you? What is attractive to you? What tends to come easy for you? Where have you seen effectiveness and fruitfulness in your life with ease by the Spirit's power? Think about the perception of the needs that you tend to see in the body of Christ. What are the opportunities in the church that you see lacking that are opportunities that you notice the most? Um, what do you feel burdened for? How do you feel led by the Spirit to meet those needs? Give some needed time to processing through that and do that in community. Ask other believers to point out, what do you see in me as evidence of grace of the Holy Spirit in my life? Where do you see me naturally uh, or supernaturally contributing to the body of Christ that we can grow in that and walk in it? Third, use it. Don't wait for a test to tell you what it is. Use it. Verse six, do it. Verse eight. In verse six, Paul says, if someone has the gift, let him use it. In general, 
You don't need to learn the gifts of the Spirit before you start to minister. It's as you minister in the body of Christ, you'll discover what your gifts are. You can't avoid it. The Holy Spirit's gonna show you, empower you, use you. Don't limit yourself. Some of you are gonna have been given a prominent gift. Others of you have been given a combination of gifts. Some of us have been given more permanent gifts. Others have been given uh, gifts as an outpouring of the Spirit for a season that may not be used regularly all the time. But ask others again what they see in you. Call it out. Once we've identified that gifting, then we are to use that gifting in service of others. We don't have room to argue with God. Oh, I wish you had made me with this gift. I wish I was more like that person. Quit comparing yourself to everybody else. Compare yourself to Jesus. Walk in the spirit. Embrace what he's given you because he's given it to you on purpose. Even if you don't know what that role is yet, like Father Christmas, in time, you're gonna figure it out if you participate. If you sit on the sidelines and watch everybody else use their gifts and complain about how you don't get to use yours, you'll never discover what it is. Just get out and start meeting needs, start serving, and you'll see that start to rise to the top. And by the way, you don't need permission here. Stop waiting on the church to create a formal pathway for you. We have certain ministries in this church that are like a trellis so that the vine can grow, but not all vines grow on the trellis. So just employ it. Turn and face one another. Stop looking at me. Start looking at one another and start figuring out how can I use my gifts to meet needs of other people that are around me. And then with that, I would simply say this. Last thing, we have got to create margin to practice the presence of God in order to hear from the Spirit, to know what our gifts are and how to use them. Can I just be straight with you? This is the biggest burden in my whole preparation this week for this, is thinking about how busy and hurried we are here in Dallas. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. A lot of us are, are conformed right now to the fast-paced rhythms of Dallas, Texas, keeping up with the Joneses, letting our calendars drive us, always going from thing to thing to thing. And I am guilty too. I love my calendar. And I am so rigidly tied to it that oftentimes I don't book up a, enough margin and I'm going from one thing to the other without being prayed up and, and, and prepared and sensing, Holy Spirit, what would you have for me? I'll see needs and I'll pass right by them because I gotta get to the next thing. We've gotta slow down and practice the presence of God in our life. We've gotta get off our phones. We've gotta get into the word. We've gotta ask the spirit to show us. And then we have to get, once we have clarity, we have to have courage to step out and employ our gifts for the building up of another. This has got to be the path forward for us, Northway. We cannot just sit and be the frozen chosen, watching the few do the work that the many should be doing. Every one of us has been gifted by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit. We need to lean into the Spirit, take the gifts he's given us, turn away and towards each other, serve the body, and then turn outward, as we're gonna see in the next coming chapters, to go take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? I'm out of time. I gotta pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just for the way that you have... Uh, gifted us as your church. Thank you for the beauty that you have given us through Jesus Christ, first by your mercy, saving us, bringing us into this family that we did not earn or deserve. May we have regard for one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, equal in the dignity and the worth of the God who has made us and the Savior that has redeemed us. And may we treat each other as such. And then God, may we take advantage of the responsibility that we have to not only discern our gifts that you've given us, but to leverage them 
for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. Help us to grow in this here in the days ahead here at Northway. God, that we might fulfill the ministry that you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.